And welcome, everyone, to this week's edition of Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Uh, a, a number of stories in the last few days, including something going on in our cycle in the Jewish calendar that really kind of pound home, I think, the same important message that we should all really be thinking about uh, as we look at the major news stories, the continuing major news stories, I think, of the last few months. And as you know, as I've said here on Novak Now, I, I consider that the issue with Iran and Iran's decision to start breaking the public agreements that it made in the 2015 nuclear deal, of course, I'm one of the many people who believe that Iran was already violating many aspects of that deal. But the public breaking of that, to go along with Iran's lashing out with more activities by its paramilitary um, satellites, including Hezbollah and the Houthi rebels, and of course, the Iranian Islamic Revolutionary uh, Guard Corps, um, has all part of really a, a major story that's been going on, really. And I think the, the, the enduring major story that's been going on in the world right now, because it involves so many of the other major players. I mean, you can't talk about what Iran has been doing without throwing in the major uh, c- countries in Europe, China, Russia, and of course, the United States and Israel. So it, it affects all of those different regions of the world. And I, I'm going to start today with stories that you might not think are related necessarily to Iran, or at least not totally related to Iran. But the things that the Iran deal and the breaking down of the Iran deal uh, and the, the mistake of making the deal in the first place have taught us, those things that, that, that those things have taught us are, are starting to be reinforced in other ways. Um, so I'll start with one story that doesn't seem like it probably has much to do with Iran, but again, you have to bear with me on this. Uh, that is, of course, we have a couple of really important stories coming out of Germany in the last few weeks. Now, when you say Germany uh, these days, you're really almost talking about really the citadel, the power uh, that is Europe. Uh, the European Union, which still officially includes the, the United Kingdom, still has, even when the United Kingdom had not voted for Brexit and wasn't in this albeit stilted and, and really kind of failed process that they've been going through to try to follow through on what their own people voted for with the Brexit vote in 2016. I mean, it's been more than three years now, and they still really haven't finished this process. Um, but even before that, even before there was any vote in the UK, even before there was any movement, a serious movement, other than people were just talking about it, but a serious political movement for, the, for Britain to leave the European Union, Germany had become the dominant player in the European Union. And there's a misconception as to why. Now, most people will say, well, the biggest reason why, or the only reason why, is because Germany had the biggest economy. And that certainly is a reason. But that's not the only reason. And that's what I'm got, got going to get into uh, when we kind of come to the conclusions of, of what I think everyone should really try to learn from some of these stories coming out, out of Germany, but also some other parts of the world, and and in a, in a special little bit of a, of a surprise uh, guest at the end, I actually think that something that we learned from the Haftarah this past Shabbat, and really the message of almost all the Haftarah wrote when it comes to a certain topic, also lead us to the same lesson that I really think people should learn and understand, not only about the way Jewish law or, or Jewish teaching or Jewish culture is really looks at a certain issue, but also something that we should really understand from, from the history of the world and from human nature. So the first story that 
is kind of making a really I'd say it's pretty much the biggest financial story of the day internationally is that Germany's biggest bank, Deutsche Bank, uh, which has been the most troubled bank of all the big banks in the world, the major big banks of the world, uh, of the last 10 years or so. Whereas the big banks here in the United States, whether it's Bank of America or J.P. Morgan Chase or even Citigroup, they have all started to recover quite a bit over the last several years to the point where they're doing very, very well. Um, Some of the British banks are doing better as well. There really isn't a the kind of weakness that we saw from the 2008 financial crash, financial sector crash, has not really continued to, to hinder some of these bigger banks, except for Deutsche Bank. And people tell me that the biggest reason why Deutsche Bank has not recovered is for the simple reason that they did not make the changes that so many of the other banks did make after the 2008 financial crisis, whether it was building true walls between their stock trading divisions, and their commercial banking, whether it was the fact that real estate became something that the banks started to treat with a little bit more caution, on and on down the line. There are a lot of smaller details that I'm totally glossing over, and if you are a financial uh, banking expert or a banking executive listening to this, I apologize for not going into all the proper details, and I acknowledge that I am not doing that. But my sources who I trust tell me that Deutsche Bank didn't make the adjustments that so many of the other big banks did make after the 2008 financial crisis. And so the news today is that Deutsche Bank is still so very much struggling. Uh, They have announced that they will cut 18,000 jobs between now and 2022. And a big reason for those job cuts is they are going to completely close down their stock trading, equities trading desks, that whole part of their business. They're just going to shut it down. They're not going to do it anymore. And this is, of course, a, a, a big blow to the German banking system. Uh, as it often does, <laughs> the stock markets initially reacted positively to the Deutsche Bank news. And when, when you have a, a company that's making big layoffs, there's a certain strong group of investors that will almost always take that news as a positive in sort of a surgical way. You know, yes, it's it's terrible for those people losing their jobs, but a lot of investors look at that and they'll say, well, at least this bank's coming down to reality here and they're going to make these big changes. You know, I, I have friends who work in the, in bankruptcy. Uh, in other words, banks hire them to go to companies that are on the brink of or are dealing with bankruptcy and they try to get them to make changes. And they'll tell me that a lot of times they won't make the changes. They just culturally, they won't make the changes. Even they'll they'll, they'll go down with the ship rather than, do the right thing. So a lot of investors see a company making a, a drastic move like this, and they'll they'll buy the stock on that news, figuring like, wow, it's hit bottom. At least they've decided to make the drastic changes. Clearly, they've had a come you know come to reality moment. We're gonna you know I'm gonna invest in them. So initially, that's what happened. And now, but taking a little closer look at it now, Deutsche Bank shares as the day moves on are kind of are a little bit lower. So it's in trouble. This is a bank that's in trouble. And, you know, one of the things that people don't understand here in the United States sometimes is that these big banks in Europe and most other countries really are government entities. Are they officially a, a division of the German government? Is Deutsche Bank officially? No. But that's like saying that the power companies, the utility companies here in the United States aren't really connected to the government. And of course they are. They can't raise or lower rates without government approval. 
They've got members of the government who are on their boards. That's how it works in our country. And it's very similar in Germany and in, in Europe, and the rest of Europe, and of course in Asia, a lot of other parts of the world. The banks are the government. There's just really not much of a separation there. So the, German, the, the Deutsche Bank failure is very much a German government failure. And when you say German government, you have to understand that the German government, this current government under, under Chancellor Angela Merkel, has been the German government for like 15 years. <laughs> this is a very long-running standing government. She has been in, in control. She has been power in Germany for a very, very long time. And to tell you the truth, the people and the governments she succeeded aren't that much different. And that's another thing to understand about the European Union. You have, whereas you might feel there's not much difference between the Republican and Democratic parties here in the United States, although I would argue Donald Trump has certainly changed that outlook. For people who thought there's no difference between having, no matter who the president is, I think Donald Trump, at least in the perception of a lot of Americans, is finally a different president. But that's, that's an issue to discuss at another time. But in Europe, even in, even in the United Kingdom, and certainly in places like Germany and in France, the differences between the major political parties when they contr- in their parliamentary systems, really not that different. You have an entity that is government, that is much more of a monolith, and much more in control of so many more parts of, of everyone's life, whether it's the banking, certainly the healthcare industry in Europe. So that's what you have in Europe. And so when the Deutsche Bank... When Deutsche Bank has these failures, it's the government's failure. And Germany, my friends, has been going through a lot of failures. Let's get into some of Germany's failures lately, because they do affect us. This is not uh, Novak now going into, let's talk about Germany and things that only involve Germany. Because Germany's failures, including Deutsche Bank, really do affect us, or here in the United States and all around the world. Again, to connect it to what I consider to be the enduring most important story of the last several months, Germany is a big problem vis-a-vis Iran. Germany is a huge problem vis-a-vis Iran. What we're seeing in Europe right now is a little bit of backbone, but not much, and certainly in the past no backbone at all, when it comes to dealing with Iran and its threats. Now, Iran is basically blackmailing the, the war, trying to blackmail Europe right now. And as I've said on previous editions of Novak now, it's got a long history. Iran and other Islamist governments and regimes have a long history of success when they do this. For those people who just sit incredulously and say, well, how, why would Iran attack a friend or a country they're trying to work with or a country they want something from? Because that's how they succeed. Islamists have a long history of succeeding when they actually physically attack the people they're trying to get something from. It works for them. And again, let's go into the archive section on the Nachum Siegel Network website, and you'll hear in some of my previous editions of Novak Now the many examples I've given of how when Islamist countries or Islamist groups have attacked uh, a country, they often get what they want. Instead of being punished, they get what they want. So Iran's latest violent outbreaks, whether it's via Hezbollah, the Houthis, or the IRGC, uh, and the stuff that they've been doing in the Persian Gulf, there's a very good chance, a better than 50-50 chance, that they will get what they want from this, which is a relief from sanctions. Now, Germany has been working really hard, along with France to some extent, but France does what Germany tells it. Germany's been working really hard to try to get around the new sanctions that the United States put on Iran that have really hurt the Iranian economy, and Germany's been trying to help Iran get around this problem which is a huge, huge issue for the rest of the world. And a terrible, huge issue for the people of Iran who want 
a regime a regime change what they so sorely need. Not only do the people of Iran need it, but of course the whole world needs a regime change. This is 40 years of this murderous, corrupt, horrific regime in Iran. And yes, the previous regime of the Shah was terrible too, I get it, but it wasn't the world menace that this regime has been for 40 years. That It's really, a, 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 you know, an apples and oranges comparison. You had a Shah of Iran who was repressive in many ways, who was corrupt in many ways, but Iran has become a murdering machine, the number one terrorist supporter and, and instigator in the world over the last 40 years, and that's not what it was under the Shah under any circumstances. I mean, not even close. It was just another kind of banana republic dictator situation, certainly in need of a lot of improvement. I'm not making excuses for it, but please, let's put this all in perspective. But Germany is a huge problem here because these sanctions that the United States, the new sanctions the United States has imposed, have imposed on Iran have really put tremendous pressure on the regime in Iran to the point that the supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, has started to pass the buck a little bit and he's blaming the people who everyone knows are just his underlings. He's blaming Hassan Rouhani, who is the, by name, you know, nominally the president of Iran, but really he doesn't have any power without Ali Khamenei saying so. He's blaming... You know, his, his own foreign minister, Javad Zarif, another person who kind of just marches to, in step to whatever Khamenei says. So when you have somebody like Ali Khamenei, who really has control over that country, hook, line, and sinker, blaming his underlings, you know that they're under pressure. And just as Iran and that regime is coming under pressure and might crumble because the people of Iran have started to protest with great, with great regularity over the last couple of years, you have a country like Germany that's trying to help them get a lifeline. It's outrageous. It's just an outrageous move by Germany, a stupid move by Germany, and one that, again, I I will try to explain as I come to the conclusion of all these different currents that are running through the world, and not only now, but again, I think we, even from our own Jewish ancient history, we know what's going on here. But that's one thing that Germany is doing right now that has been problematic ever since the United States left the nuclear deal. For Germany to continue to help Iran whatever way it can. And again, Iran is hurting. There are a lot of individual companies in Europe, even though they have tremendous connections to their, to their governments, as I was explaining before, whatever independent streak there is in some of those companies to move away from their own governments and to just try to avoid issues with the United States, that's been going on. In other words, you've had a lot of European country companies that even though their governments would support if they continued to do business with Iran, they don't want trouble with the United States, and so they have moved away from Iran economically, and Iran's economic situation has really been hurt. Are we at a point where no money is coming into Iran, where everyone is following the sanctions? Of course not. But again, in economics, it's all relative. What makes you feel like you're poor when you go from making $100,000 a year to $0 a year? Well, certainly that would. But if you go from $100,000 a year to making $50,000 a year, yeah, you're going to feel poor. You're going to feel it really badly, even though you're still making half the money. I mean, even if you went from $100 to $75, you'd still feel that very, very sharply. And so that's what's going on in Iran. It, It does seem that incoming revenues into Iran have been cut by about half. And there are some people who don't understand economics and don't understand the relative nature of finance and will say, well... Half the world is totally ignoring Trump and his stupid sanctions. It doesn't matter. You've got a massive amount of money not coming into this country. It hurts. And, and rightfully so. And yet we have countries led by Germany that are trying to alleviate this however much they can. 
And that's a problem because if they would just get out of the way, as I've said many times, if they would just get out of the way and allow this regime to be choked out, we could have the end of a really murderous, murderous regime. And, you know, Iran has killed plenty of Europeans also. It's not like they spare the Germans. I mean, this, this foolish, foolish notion. I mean, it's almost like Stockholm Syndrome, where, they, you know, where Germany thinks, oh, well, you know, maybe we'll be spared. It's, it's just outrageous. And so that's an issue with Germany right now. And, of course, this is connect, connected to another problem that Germany has posed for the world. If you think it's just Iran that Germany is helping to prop up, well, the other country that Germany has been helping to prop up and giving it undue power and undue influence is Russia. Germany has basically made, an, and this German government, this Angela Merkel government over the last 15 years or so, has had some of the worst energy policy in the history of the world. They decided to go, in order to get a swing voter group of moderate environmentalists, because Angela Merkel's party officially is a middle-of-the-road type party. Sometimes people call it center-right. It's just center-of-the-road kind of party. But to win elections, they need to get some of that swing vote. So that center-left type that are a little bit more to the center, but that center-left type of voter in Germany that's pro-environment has been a real important target for the Merkel government over the many elections that it's won to stay in power. And they have enacted, in order to get that vote, a very, very radical renewable energy program in Germany, which has turned out to be a complete failure. They have not only abandoned the traditional old fossil fuel model of petroleum and natural gas and coal, which you can make a very good argument for, I understand, from an environmental and even an economic argument. You certainly want to have diversified energy sources beyond that. But They've also abandoned what would had been one of Europe's more forward-leaning and more groundbreaking and technically an, on, on the edge of, of really being in the f- a futuristic technology, their nuclear technology. They also trashed that in favor of renewable wind and solar. And guess what? There isn't enough wind and there isn't enough solar energy in Germany to power the country. And so they've made recently massive deals with the Russians to bring in the oil that they need. Because guess what? You can't heat and power a country like Germany and that economy that's so large on just the renewable energy sources that they were trying to, to push. So basically they trashed their own energy sources in favor of a what really is just a, a small alternative backup. I, I, you know, I'm one of those many people who believes that we should absolutely, absolutely we should investigate and we should explore wind power and solar power as backups, as additional p- power sources that we don't have to use as much petroleum, don't have to use as much coal. Um, I'm a huge proponent of natural gas because it's, it's twice as clean as coal and it's certainly cleaner than petroleum. But if you don't want to use as much of that too, fine, let's, 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 have, some, let's have some wind power, let's have some solar power where it works. But to rely on it even more than a 20%, I mean, I think even 10% is probably a stretch. But let's say 10% for those renewables. But to rely on it more than that, and to rely on it by the huge, huge amount percentage that Germany was trying to rely on it, is foolish. It's foolish. You, you can have all the marches you want, and all the environmentalism you want, and I understand the concerns. But it, the mathematics still kind of rules the day here. 
you don't have enough power. So unless you're marching to turn the lights out and to bring us all back to the Stone Ages, you can't say get rid of all fossil fuels tomorrow and we're all going to go to renewables because then we would be without about 90% of the energy that we need. So you see that this doesn't just have environmental and financial repercussions. It has a massive political and a, a political repercussion because now you have propped up Russia to this point where Germany, the biggest economy in all of Europe, the big, big economy, and in Russia, which has the economy about the size of Italy, which for the size of the country uh, as large as Russia is an embarrassment. Right? They don't have much in Russia to speak for themselves. <clears throat> but Germany gave them a massive new customer, at least in the, in, in, the, in the amount of energy that they're buying from Russia, because of their silly environmental policies, because of Angela Merkel's outrageous, silly environmental policies. And so now Russia has much more political influence than it deserves in Western Europe, not just in Eastern Europe. You know, we know that Russia has a tremendous amount of influence over countries like Poland and Hungary and, 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 and the Baltics because of that energy hegemony that they have. But Germany has really boosted them up again. And it's really, really, really depressing to see that, to see that happen. It's, it's made this problem even bigger. And yes, it's a big reason also why Germany is trying to help Iran out because they want to have a little bit of a backstop against Russia. If Russia and their oil become too problematic, they, they want to have that Iranian oil coming to them more directly and maybe even get a better deal for it. But this is about their own bad policies. And it's also about the fact that this German government and almost all these governments in Europe, no matter how much of my you know, small amount they've won in the election, it doesn't matter. Governments in Europe have way too much power. They have, ever since the end of World War II, they have way too much power. And I'm talking about the democratically elected governments here. I'm not talking about dictatorships. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about the Nazis. I'm not talking about pre-World War II or, or, or during World War II. I'm talking about post-World War II Europe. And I'm not including the USSR. I'm talking about these democratic countries. And can you really have a democracy where the people have this kind of influence when it's really a government entity that makes these decisions without having to worry so much about what the people say? And Germany, not only with this issue with Iran, but also with the issue with Russia, and also just with the physical issue. Angela Merkel has had public physical breakdowns in the last few weeks. She's having you know, like the shakes. Some people think she might have Parkinson's, but she's not stepping down. I mean, if we had a president of the United States who was physically fainting or breaking down or shaking at multiple events, you better believe it would, it would cause a constitutional crisis if he or she refused to at least some way, you know, go, to, go to get a, a, a medical checkup and let the whole country know what the results were. So, Again, th this is a case of just too much power in the hands of a government. Now, for a non-democratic country, we're also seeing that, of course, with China every day. And today's news is just another example of that. You've got another example today of China's <coughs> overreaching power over everything that lives and breathes in China. And that has to do with the Chinese telecom giant Huawei, this massive Chinese telecom company that, that the Trump administration is trying to push back on because it accuses it, and a lot of other people accuse it as well, of industrial and military espionage. This is a telecom company that people are worried is stealing secrets from the countries with, it, with which it does business. And there's a massive new study out today 
and uh, parts of it more out today, but it's actually been coming out since April by a number of academics showing that a huge number of the people who work at Huawei are also at the same time work for Chinese intelligence agencies or the Chinese military, the whole nine yards. And again, this is about power. It's not just about the fact that Huawei and China want to make more money. The leaders of the Chinese Communist Party and the leaders and, and Angela Merkel and Vladimir Putin, they're all really wealthy. I'm gonna, here's a spoiler alert. Super wealthy. In fact, Vladimir Putin might actually be the wealthiest man in the world. Um, it's, it's hard to really gauge how much money he has because, of course, a lot of it is secret and hidden in the whole, nine, in the whole deal there. But it's not about money. It's about power. And giving up power is very, very difficult for human beings to do, especially when they've had it for a certain period of time. That's why Angela Merkel can have these physical breakdowns in public and not even entertain the idea of stepping down. By the way, she's supposed to step down soon. We've been told for about six months now she's going to step down any day now. Hasn't happened yet. Hasn't happened yet. The government control in the democratic countries, supposedly democratic, and the not-democratic countries, whether we're talking about the EU, whether we're talking about Russia, whether we're talking about China, and in many ways the United States as well, but let's keep it to these countries for now. It's about the keeping of power. So when they make a decision about getting rid of certain types of power, like Germany has with, the, with, getting, with getting rid of their power sources and going after this alternative stuff, it wasn't for money, although some people may have been paid off. I get it. But it wasn't about money, and it certainly wasn't about environmentalism. It was about power. They like that power, which is why so many government types are so enamored of the whole climate change alarmism. And I'm not here to argue about climate change. Obviously, there is climate change. Obviously, it is a threat. In some parts of the world, it isn't a threat, by the way. In some parts of the world, it makes life better. But it is a threat to the way that we live now. We're going to have to make adjustments. I'm not denying any of that stuff. The science is the science, and there's no denying it. And the climate has always been changing in the world, and sometimes it's had radical, serious effects, and we've got to be ready for it. But the people in the government, most of the people shouting about it from a political standpoint are doing it for political reasons. The people of Germany, the government of Germany, as much as a lot of people in the Jewish community, we'd love to say, oh, here they go again with their anti-Semitism. They're favoring Iran because of the anti-Semitism. Sure, there's pl- I'm sure there's people in the German government who are still anti-Semites. I- I- I'm not denying that. But that's not the reason, that's not the issue here right now. The issue is that Germany wants, the German government likes power, the people in the government like power, and it's a powerful, and it's a way to flex their powerful muscles to try to get the, around the sanctions for Iran. Power doesn't just sit in a vacuum, it does... It has to be exercised. And that's what the German government is doing. That's what the Chinese government is doing. That's what the Russian government is doing. And power itself and power alone can be very corrupting. So what do our Haftarot have to say about this as I wrap up this week's edition of Novak Now? Well, of course, last week we read about the official beginning of the kingdom, the kingship of King Saul. And as you know, from those of you who know even a little bit of your, of your Torah stories, you know that the, that the prophet Samuel, Shmuel, didn't want any kings. And the rabbis, and, and of course the people who put together the Haftarot, so I guess we're talking about the men of the Great Assembly, Anshe Knesset Agadola in Hebrew, they didn't like the kings. They were descendants of, of Jewish generations, of, of generations of Jews who felt that basically the kings had led them down this path. That maybe there, ha- there wouldn't have been an exile. Maybe the temples wouldn't have been destroyed if the kings hadn't been so politically motivated by power. 
And so if you read every single Haftarah, just go through your Humash now and look at the Haftarah for every week, and you'll see, are there any Haftarot that really, really praise the kings for anything that they do power-wise? And the answer is no. In fact, they're almost always denigrated. There's a couple of Haftarot talking about building of, you know, the, the, the original temple, where it just says Solomon did this, but it doesn't really go into a huge praise of the man. What I'm trying to say is that our Jewish tradition, certainly since the time of the rabbis and the, pre, the pre-rabbinic period of the Perushim, certainly they always understood, they felt very, very strongly, that power in itself corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. These are things that we believe in Western secular society, or we've been taught, but understand, of course, the roots of that are in our Jewish tradition. And what's going on with Germany, what's going on with China and Russia, are the latest examples of this. Keep an eye out for it when you look at the news There's really nothing new that much new under the sun, but make sure that you know specifically the lesson that we've known for thousands of years. This is Jake Novak. This is Novak Now on the Nachum Stiegel Network. I'll speak to you again next week.